Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, historian William Deverell delivers a groundbreaking lecture on the Redemptive West, the role that the American West played in healing the wounds inflicted by the Civil War. This talk was recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Zocalo's Gregory Rodriguez introduces William Deverell. William Deverell is professor of history at USC and director of the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West. He's the author or editor of several books on the history of the 19th and 20th century American West, among them Whitewashed Adobe, The Rise of Los Angeles and the Remaking of Its Mexican Past, and Railroad Crossing, Californians and the Railroad, 1850 to 1910. With Greg Heise of USC, he edited Eden by Design, the 1930 Olmsted Bartholomew Plan for the Los Angeles region, and Land of Sunshine, the Environmental History of Metropolitan Los Angeles. He received his undergraduate degree in American Studies from Stanford University and his PhD in American History from Princeton. He has previously taught at the University of California, San Diego, and at Caltech. His current work includes a co-authored history of California with Albert Camarillo of Stanford University, a co-edited volume of essays on California with David Eigler of UC Irvine, and a book project devoted to the themes explored in tonight's lecture. Please welcome William Deverell. Good evening. Thanks very much, Gregory. Abraham Lincoln never came to California, but he wanted to. Within hours of his 1865 assassination, while on a carriage ride with his wife, Lincoln spoke of visiting the Far West. Utterly exhausted by the commander-in-chief's stress of leading the Union through four years of indescribable warfare, the congenitally melancholy president yearned for the rejuvenation and convalescence that California seemed to promise. The California dream of life-changing wealth, that profound, instantaneous transition so aptly symbolized by Carpenter James Marshall's lucky 1848 discovery of a gold nugget in John Sutter's sawmill, was not even 20 years old in 1865. But that's not the California dream Abraham Lincoln mused about on his carriage ride towards death. Assassination makes the moment all the more ironic. Lincoln looked west for healing on the very day he was killed. It would never come true for him, but Lincoln's wishful conversation reminds us of another California dream of the 19th century, one historians and others have unaccountably forgotten. That California, that American West, is the place of a certain set of dreams having everything to do with the Civil War, with convalescence and with the healing of both the body and the body politic. That's the topic of my talk this evening. I'd like to thank you all very much for coming. I'd like to express my special gratitude to Gregory Rodriguez and others of his colleagues at Zocalo, a forum I'm especially honored to be part of in that it represents a fresh, innovative look at contemporary and cultural affairs in greater Los Angeles. The American West provoked and in a very real sense caused the Civil War. Abstract early 19th century disagreements over territorial expansion and the future of slavery became fighting words by the 1840s and the 1850s. The rapid escalation of sectional tension towards disunion can be drawn as a line from one Western moment to another. From the 1830s and 1840s, sectional turmoil surrounding expansion and warfare in Texas through the 1846-48 brutal little war against the Republic of Mexico and subsequent congressional and even constitutional questions over territorial acquisition, onto the Compromise of 1850 and thence to the killing plains of bleeding Kansas by the mid-1850s, 
Each arena of rising conflict had much to do with disagreements over the meaning of Western conquest and the westward expansion of slavery or free labor ideology. Taken together, these rehearsed and then helped to cause the Civil War. Historians of antebellum America correctly insist that the Far West played a critical role in the eventual capitulation to war. Scholars know well the ways in which questions over the future of Western territories provoked political and other antagonisms on the ground and in Washington. The West helped bring about the war in one shattering moment after another, and Western politicians proved inept to meet the challenges of sectionalism effectively, or at the very least in over their heads, naive and utterly unable to reverse the rush to the precipice that their very own region was initiating. So by the time John Brown took what he learned as an abolitionist zealot in Kansas, namely how to slaughter pro-slavery men in cold blood, to the east in the federal armory at Harper's Ferry, the war was going to come. Lincoln's election and the South's immediate secession are but additional preludes, not causes. But what of the West after the war? With a few notable exceptions, generally works that trace Reconstruction politics in Western settings, American historians have too quickly jettisoned the West from the Civil War in their teaching and research devoted to the post-war. This tendency encapsulated in the usual textbook recitation of post-war Western history through chapters entitled things like The Conquest of the West or The Rise of the West is profoundly misleading, and it doesn't make sense. If you're working on, for instance, the coming of age of Los Angeles, a moment we usually date as the mid-1880s, we need to remember just how proximate the Civil War was to the people who were here as close to them as the 1980s is to us, and of course much more traumatic. You could hardly live through the Civil War in America without knowing someone or being related to someone who was wounded or killed in that war. One quarter of the entire state of Mississippi's annual budget in the years immediately following the Civil War went to the purchase of prosthetic devices for Mississippi veterans. You couldn't escape the proximity of the Civil War in ways personal and temporal. An important aim of tonight's talk is to remind us all of the proximate and ongoing relationship of the Civil War to the rise of the West period, circa 1870 to 1910 or so. The war was simply far too great a rupture in the national fabric to be so easily pushed aside by scholars a century later. On the contrary, the post-Civil War West was explicitly tied to the waging and aftermath of the wars in ways just as critical as the antebellum West was tied to the coming of the conflagration. Most importantly, scholars have paid far too little attention to the ways in which a broken nation and its wounded people sought redemption and convalescence in the post-war West. People moved West because of the Civil War, because they wanted to get away, because they wanted to heal, physically, emotionally, or otherwise. And most of them came here on the Transcontinental Railroad, which was, if anything, a device by which the nation was supposed to be drawn together after the war, a gigantic suture tying together the torn asunder north and south. Western historians have looked for the Civil War in the West in all the wrong places, a battle here or there. They forget that the war was everywhere, in rhetoric and politics, and they forget that the impact of the war was also everywhere. If ever there was a case of historians looking for trees while missing the magnitude of the forest, this is it. There are a few Civil War battles of importance in the West, though calling them battles is to elevate skirmishes to a higher level of importance. Glorieta Pass in New Mexico is the most famous and most important, and it does blunt a Confederate hope to build a supply and territory line in the southwest, ostensibly along the Santa Fe Trail. Finding battles isn't where you find the Civil War in the West. You find the Civil War in the West everywhere else but battlefields. The war is fought on the battlefields of the East and the South, 
and it's fought there because of the ways in which Union and Confederate politicians disagreed about the West. The war is everywhere in the West before, during, and after the hostilities. Let me pose a simple question. If the West caused the Civil War, what did the West do to heal the wounds of that war? Some understood that the West had a special role in the post-war aftermath when peace ought to reign. Even before the war ended, Eastern opinion assumed the soon-to-be veterans would find their way west. In February of 1865, the New York Herald wrote of the restlessness of soldiers and insisted that post-war work, what it called the dull routine of regular employment, would hardly satisfy men accustomed to the nomadic adventurousness of soldiering. There are plenty of fine strapping fellows who would laugh at the idea of being bound down to a bench or a spade after having enjoyed the liberty of war. What would come of these men? They would go west. Colorado, Idaho, Nevada, Montana, and Utah, to say nothing of Mexico, Sonora, Sinaloa, Durango, Chihuahua, Laura, California, are yearning for such settlers as those in the armies of the north and the south. They will go there, settle down, populate the country, get rich, and double the size of the Union within 20 years, the paper said. It's intriguing that the paper assumed post-war peace between northerners and southerners in the West, a wishful if quaint notion, whereas elsewhere, even the VA hospitals were only for the volunteer soldiers of the Union. The post-war peace made no provision for southerners in that regard. But what the Herald missed is as interesting, the convalescent quality of much of that post-war migration westward and the reasons for it. In this new book project, I expect to pay attention to westering people, individuals and collective Americans both, and I want to try to understand their journeys in the years after and because of the Civil War. This is a book mostly about them, but it's also about how they got here, too, a perspective which invites a closer look at the Transcontinental Rail Project, which is perfectly coincident, but not coincidental, with the Civil War. Scarcely a week after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect in early 1863, groundbreaking ceremonies were held in Sacramento for the launch of the Central Pacific Railroad. Designed to be built east to meet the westward-building Union Pacific somewhere, the Central Pacific and its role in the Transcontinental Project was hailed as something other than ordinary railroad building. This was the answer to the Civil War raging back east. Hail then, all hail, exclaimed an orator at that groundbreaking, this auspicious hour. Hail this bond of brotherhood and union. Hail this marriage tie between the Atlantic and the Pacific. Hail, all hail, this bow of promise which amid all the clouds of war is seen spanning the continent, the symbol, the harbinger, the pledge of a higher civilization and an ultimate worldwide peace. It would be a year before any rails were laid, but the burden was already placed on the rail project as an iron suture stitching together the wounded nation. On a line east to west, the rail project would heal north and south. Central Pacific and Union Pacific would meet, and not only would the oceans be bridged, but so too would the railroad corporations herald a pacific or peaceful renewal of the nation itself. That point was hardly lost on preachers. Their sermons tied the railroad to the biblical exhortation to make straight in the desert a highway for your God and forcefully prophesied great tidings to be brought forth upon the driving of the last spike. Said one, I think we must all feel that the mission of railroads is somewhere in the general direction of human peace, fraternity, unity. Clearly these iron bonds which bind states hint a higher and warmer and purer brotherhood of mankind. Another made the point all the more vehemently. With the railroad, he said, the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven and will switch off into Oakland. This unsubtle declaration that the second coming was at hand was not so unusual in the 1860s. Some believed that the Civil War itself could be found in Revelation's prophecies, 
while others assumed that the railroad would provide divine transportation for Jesus Christ's triumphal return earthward. And to be sure, that holy arrival was to take place in the West, though Oakland may seem, at least to our ears, a bit far-fetched as the epicenter of the New Jerusalem. Nonetheless, linking the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad to the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy occupies the highest ground as to the post-war redemptive power of the West and deserves to be taken seriously as reflective of certain aspects of the culture of the era. You're listening to historian William Deverell, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Summer may be here, but Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series is not taking a vacation. Our live events are going strong all summer long. For more information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Now, men of more ordinary stature than Christ himself most certainly did come west, driven there by the Civil War, and their journeys heralded redemption of a different caste or power, and I expect to concentrate on the stories of a handful of them in the early goings of this project. As good a figure to start with is Dr. Jonathan Letterman, a small, slight man with, quote, the face of a scholar, who trained as a physician at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia before the war, and then signed up for military service in the medical corps of the pre-Civil War American West Army. Letterman became a prominent surgeon, and during the war was made medical director of the Army of the Potomac. He was author of the Letterman Plan, which organized Union hospitals around a set of principles, including plenty of fresh air, modular tent hospitals, battlefield triage, and an ambulance corps. And yet Letterman remained appalled by the human carnage around him, both that wrought by the war and by the surgeons who worked for him. As he wrote, the surgery of these battlefields has been pronounced butchery. And so he quit. Letterman resigned from the United States Army in 1864 and did something odd. He moved across the nation all the way to Southern California to what was then called Buena Ventura, which we know as Ventura, which in the mid-1860s couldn't have had more people in it than are gathered here this evening. And from this humble base of operations, Letterman did two things. One, he became an unsuccessful oil wildcatter. He was, in fact, an utter failure at this. Two, and with more success, he wrote a book entitled Medical Reflections of the Army of the Potomac from Southern California, a first-rate history of the Civil War from the physician's vantage. The reason I expect to focus a fair amount on Dr. Letterman is because of this book, as it is literally a medical history of the war written in the West, and it offers a metaphorical connection to the medical history of the Civil War written in the lives and bodies of thousands of veterans, Northern and Southern alike, who came to the West following the war, hoping that relocation would, like in the case of Letterman himself, allow them to start a life anew, if not healed. Letterman's story is not a happy one. Following his oil exploration failures, he moved north to San Francisco and became that city's coroner. His young wife, whom he married just before resigning his commission, soon died, and so too, suffering from ill health and prone to reclusiveness, did Letterman himself. The hospital at the Presidio in San Francisco retains his name. Letterman shared San Francisco in common with his contemporary Thomas Starr King. King, known as Starr King, had been a favorite of Emerson's as a young Bostonian Unitarian preacher. He was barely five feet tall, slight, even sickly, but brilliant, and by all accounts a captivating lecturer. I hardly weigh 120 pounds, he said once, but when I'm mad, I weigh a ton. (laughs) King came to California himself in 1860, and he knew well the impact of the war, even at the transcontinental remove of California. 
Star King hated the Civil War, and he expected his adopted state to play a profound role in the contest and especially in ending it. His supporters say he kept California in, in the Union, which is too strong an opinion and exaggerates his role. But he did keep ideas of peace alive and utilized his pulpit in the West in so doing. He was famous, he was anti-slavery, and he was anti-war. He died in 1864 and was made a martyr just before Lincoln's martyrdom became the most important in American history. King's death actually fits into a triptych of Civil War martyrdom. First, John Brown was martyred to the cause of anti-slavery when he was hanged at the end of 1859 for trying to loot the Federal Army armory at Harper's Ferry of its weapons in order to start a domestic insurrection against slavery. His martyrdom was all in the name of the redemptive power of warfare. Brown aimed, in his words, to purge the land with blood. And his own eulogy, given before the court upon his sentencing, said much the same. I believe to have interfered as I have done in behalf of God's despised poor was not wrong but right. Now, if it be deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit, so let it be done. Once John Brown tried the assault on Harper's Ferry, repelled, irony of ironies, by Colonel Robert E. Lee at the head of a detachment of Marines and soldiers, and once the abolitionist North took him up on his gallows offer of martyrdom, we can see the Civil War beckon. The story of Thomas Starr King and his martyrdom is an entirely different kind. His was for peace and in the name of peace. King saw in the far west, and especially in a place like Yosemite, which he loved, the hope for national unification and closeness to God. His death was hailed as a way to unite the nation east and west, north and south, through honoring his life and vision. His life was marked as a western beacon of peace in death. As the Los Angeles Times wrote, by his grave it seemed as if strife was for the hour ended. The poet John Greenleaf Whittier eulogized King thusly, let the strongest or strong organ with its loftiest swell lift the proud sorrow of the land and tell that the brave sower saw his ripened grain. O east and west, O morn and sunset, twain no more forever. Has he lived in vain, who priest of freedom made ye one? Now, not all figures analyzed for this project in this westering post-war reflex need be real. A search for the cultural magnetism of the healing West can take one into the pages of fiction alongside those of memoir, reportage, and history. And in this respect, one book stands out above all others. The Virginian, a turn-of-the-century bestseller now enshrined in the American canon, is all about a southern boy scarred by the loss of male family members in the war. He lights out for the West. There he meets and falls in love with New Englander Molly. Together they drop their sectional loyalties and penchant for sectional antagonisms, and in the West they remake their own lives, and as the narrator makes clear, they symbolize a remade America. That narrator was author Owen Wister. His own life speaks of the search for health in the West. Suffering like his mother from neurasthenia, that grab-bag Gilded Age diagnosis used to describe maladies ranging from, among others, war-induced shell shock and post-traumatic stress disorder, anorexia nervosa, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and simple exhaustion. Wister was a patient of Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell, a Philadelphia physician who became famous and remains so for a treatise on the nerve damage and subsequent treatment of Civil War gunshot wounds. Mitchell ordered Sarah Wister, the mother, to bed. He ordered her son to the West. Owen Wister's westering changed his life, and he paid back a regional debt in his fiction. 
The west of the Virginian is nothing short of the new America, a place shorn of long-standing enmity between north and south, and a place where north and south could find hope in new bonds symbolized as matrimony. In so many ways, the nation itself suffered from post-war stress disorder. America was neurasthenic in the aftermath of the catastrophe. The South had amputated itself from the body politic, despite Abraham Lincoln's constitutional insistence that secession was not literally possible, that this was only illegitimate rebellion. So many of our stereotypical associations of the West and true American character, rugged individualism, the cowboy mystique, the association of American values with particular landscapes, date from the post-war era. The nation is in search of itself. A wounded North mistrusts the South. The shattered South mistrusts the North, and the West beckons. In search of cures, the nation looked West, and the nation went West, to the Rockies, to the Northwest, to the Southwest, and, of course, to California North and South. We have long known of Southern California's attraction to those suffering pulmonary distress in the late 19th century, described as tuberculosis if you were poor, consumption if you were not. But we misread the story, I think, if we see these as somehow uncoupled from the great national trauma of the very recent Civil War. Pulmonary distress can be and could be neurasthenic, just as it could be caused by insults less subtle than tubercular bacterium, a wartime gunshot wound to the chest, for example. Owen Wister went west. So too did his friend and the man to whom his novel is dedicated. Famously sickly and nearsighted until the west bucked him up, Theodore Roosevelt was both healed and remade by the West, and it is that region he chose to embody for the rest of his life. So, too, with Los Angeles' own Charles Fletcher Lummis, who traded Harvard and Midwestern newspapering life for a famous walk across the Southwest in the 1880s and arrival in Southern California, where he would embody the Southwest, a place he claimed mistakenly to have named for the remainder of his own fascinating life. Already in the earliest stages of this project, I have been startled by the frequency of encounters with those whose lives echo with the power, presumed or real, of the post-war West to rejuvenate the nation and its people. Frederick Law Olmsted came West. The greatest of all landscape architects in American history, Olmsted had served as the Secretary of the United States Sanitary Commission, a precursor to the Red Cross, where he saw firsthand the ravages of the war. In 1864, Olmsted authored the first and in many ways the most important treatise on Yosemite. It is, in some specific Yosemite respects, a kind of letterman plan for the wounded nation, a prescription for the nation to medicate itself physiologically and psychologically by immersion in nature. Historians seem to have missed an important point on all this. The National Park Movement, aptly symbolized by federal action regarding Yosemite in 1864 and Yellowstone in 1872, is both a Western phenomenon at the outset and perfectly coincident with the post-war. Frederick Law Olmsted saw a park all around him when he walked in the Yosemite Valley, and this was no simile. Olmsted saw, as only visionaries can see, an alternative future for the landscape. He viewed the valley floor as a park ideally suited for contemplation, a bigger and bolder environment in the genre of the New England landscapes of transcendental reverie or his own central park. The state of California asked him to oversee the first Yosemite Commission. The commission was to offer ideas as to what ought to be done with the reserved Yosemite landscape once Congress put protections around it. Olmsted obliged with ideas by then familiar to him about the necessity of melding democracy with nature in order to preserve both. He asserted that the trauma of the Civil War heightened the nation's susceptibility to contemplation, both aesthetic and therapeutic. 
It is a fact, he wrote, of much significance with reference to the temper and spirit which ruled the loyal people of the United States during the War of the Great Rebellion, that a livelier susceptibility to the influence of art was apparent, and greater progress in the manifestations of artistic talent was made than in any similar period before in the history of the country. Clearly, Yosemite was part of that aesthetic awakening, Olmsted understood, as a literal work of art during a war-induced artistic renaissance born of trauma, need, and longing. His arguments emphasize the point that Yosemite's arrival into American consciousness, whether by way of photographs, paintings, or floridly descriptive writings, was about national healing and convalescence. A shattered nation looked west, well beyond the conflagration, to environments peaceful and calm, not those torn asunder by war. The Civil War battlefields themselves would later have their role to play in the commemorative healing of Reunion, but that would be later, certainly not until the 1890s at the earliest, and perhaps not until the 1910s, a movement both galvanized and symbolized by the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg in 1913, when Southern men 70 and 80 years old reenacted Pickett's mile-long charge towards emplaced Union cannon, walking where they once ran, and upon reaching the rise of Cemetery Ridge, reaching to embrace their Union counterparts, old men weeping in the twilight of the day, the twilight of their memories, and the twilight of their lives. All that would come later. In the immediate aftermath of the war, it was nature, especially Western nature, raised up as soothing to the wounds of national division. Ironically, Olmsted's report languished for decades, a victim of its author's keen vision. His preservation stance towards Yosemite ran counter to other commissioners' hopes for concerted tourist development of the park. Olmsted envisioned for the West, and again I see the Civil War all over this, something different than the ways in which pre-Civil War nature and keystone environmental places fit into the national mood or national need. We must place Olmsted's contemplative Yosemite alongside its precursor as the most American of natural places. What Yosemite became, Niagara Falls once was. But Niagara, by virtue of what it is, is hardly a contemplative zone. It fits more into the need to see the power of God at work so that the viewer can be scolded or shocked back into the submissiveness in the presence of the Almighty. Or the exact opposite, a godless zone of profane amusements. People went to Niagara before the Civil War to be stunned, but they also went because for a penny or a nickel they could stand at the base of the falls and watch as creaky barges loaded up with circus animals plunged over the falls. Yosemite this was not, then or now, and Olmsted knew it. Not until John Muir had risen to influence in the last decade of the century did Yosemite come under full environmental protection as a national park freed from the grasp of tourist or commercial interests. And while it's unfair to Muir and his gargantuan influence to think of him as Olmsted's amanuensis, he did nonetheless channel Olmsted's 1860 ideas into the campaign for Yosemite's legitimate federal protection a generation later. What Olmsted launched, albeit quietly, Muir guided to success. You're listening to historian William Deverell, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Coming up next week on Zocalo Radio, Jamie McCourt, co-owner of the L.A. Dodgers, talks with Megan Dom about professional baseball. And L.A. restaurateur Susan Feniger and Mary Sue Milliken tell Jennifer Berry about what it takes to make it in the rough-and-tumble biz of restaurants. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we'll be back with historian William Deverell. 
Stay tuned to Zocalo. Contribute to KPCC today and you'll automatically be entered in our pre-drive sweepstakes for a $1,000 shopping spree at Amazon.com. Listeners like you are KPCC's main source of funding, and this is one way to say thanks for your support. When you pledge before June 26th, you'll not only be entered in the Amazon.com giveaway, but your early bird contribution will help make our drive shorter. No pledge necessary to enter, but we hope you'll take advantage of this chance to win big and help make our June drive short and sweet. Contribute online today at kpcc.org, and thanks. Lisa Mullins, anchor of PRI's The World on The Art of the Interview. You can break through a lot and get down to a really interesting story from people. And every listener loves a story. And I'm the same way. So when they let down the guard, when they speak genuinely, when they become the real thing that they are, that's when I'm most satisfied and most grateful. Lisa Mullins brings you news from around the globe on PRI's The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to a talk by historian William Deverell on the Redemptive West, the American West in the post-Civil War era, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Do we connect John Muir, the hermit of Yosemite, to the far-off Civil War and redemption in the West? Absolutely we do, and I'd like to spend a fair amount of time with Muir and Yosemite in this latter part of my talk. Raised in Wisconsin... John Muir came of age with the coming of the Civil War. It appalled him, not least because Wisconsin regiments were so much cannon fodder once Ulysses S. Grant figured out that he had far more men to sacrifice than did Robert E. Lee. Muir dodged the Civil War draft by walking to Canada and thence on to Florida and eventually California. There, in the decidedly un-New Jerusalem surroundings of 1868 Oakland, Muir asked a bystander to direct him to the wild places. From Oakland, he went to Yosemite, and there he stayed for four years, or in some ways, for the rest of his entire life. John Muir loved the Sierra Nevada landscape with a passion akin to obsession. The mountain range, as he put it so enduringly, was the range of light, the most divinely beautiful of all the mountain chains I have seen. His was assuredly a religious, redemptive exuberance about the Sierra. Though it would have not been difficult to divine Muir's faith and religiosity, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who in some respects replaced the dead Thomas Starr King with Muir on his list of men who exemplified the best of America, recognized this immediately on his own pilgrimage west as an old man. Emerson would later make deliberate and hardly metaphorical reference to Muir's mountain tabernacle in beseeching letters trying to draw the environmentalist east as Emerson's student. Muir's religious excitement over nature, Yosemite's nature, is in many respects easy to understand, for it seems to match up with presumptions about the religious bent of 19th century America. Muir's upbringing hammered a robust, deeply ascetic brand of Presbyterianism into his head and heart. As a boy, he could recite the New Testament from memory, a skill most likely beaten into him by his father. His language about the prayerful solemnity and grandeur of the Sierra Nevada, and Yosemite in particular, is not so different from the vaunted phrases of the age, except that Muir believed it all. Muir believed that God's work was inscribed most powerfully in Yosemite, his wanderings and scampering around the park, which are the stuff of legitimate legend a hundred years later, were inextricably tied to his devotional life. In the Yosemite landscape, he saw a conduit to the divine and increasingly the divine itself. Even upon arriving in Yosemite for the first time, Muir went looking for God's handiwork, and he found it everywhere. His searches high and low, to and fro, are joyous in their abandon, a joy made infectious through his writings. 
Muir's ecstatic discoveries revealed and replenished his passion. War, and especially the Civil War, was profanity. Yosemite was divinity. Muir's looking to him was a version of reading. What he read was nature itself, the language of God's writing on the rocks, trees, and waterfalls of the Yosemite gospel. We should never doubt Muir's religiosity, nor should we forget the religious power he saw and narrated all around him. Yosemite may indeed be a sacred site in the United States today, and it is surely California's most sacred site. But ironically, that sacredness has been leached of the religiosity its most important guardians saw in it. If a place can be sacred and secular all at once, that place is Yosemite. It is in this the environmental counterpart to California's missions. Places of worship, yes, but better known as examples of a kind of civil religion constituting an ancient California past yet in our midst. John Muir would not understand nor countenance this irony. Any latter-day visitor to the park who finds religious or deeply spiritual solace, inspiration, or meaning in the landscape arrayed before her is following in Muir's tradition. Where his brand of theology inscribed in geology makes a good fit with the 19th century, his sheer physicality is harder to match with the era. But we cannot ignore Muir the hiker in favor of Muir the supplicant. Muir's physical exploits are hardly less important in making Yosemite into the key representation of post-war American wilderness. He possessed, one suspects, something of the physiological needs of the modern-day extreme sports participant. It was as if his own chemical makeup created the hard-to-quench need for both physical and religious rushes that only darings do in nature would satisfy. This aspect of Muir's almost soldiering love for Yosemite makes him anachronistic and well ahead of his time. We almost expect to find him outfitted in Gore-Tex when we encounter him wandering around the Yosemite backcountry, where Thoreau, Emerson's best and favorite student, walked and looked. Muir walked, looked, and climbed. He clambered up tall trees blowing to and fro in ferocious winds. He tossed himself headlong into avalanches. He climbed rock faces with fingers and toes. Following Muir's steep trail a century later, the poet Gary Snyder made a succinct little journal entry, John Muir certainly had guts. In his four years of lonely Yosemite solitude, Muir engaged in a wilderness experiment. On the one hand, influenced by transcendentalism and no doubt Emerson himself, he was trying to free himself from his body in experiential fervor, hoping we can imagine to become as Emerson's transparent eyeball. But he was at the same time trying to experience Yosemite with every part of his body for the tingling exuberance of it. There is in Muir's experiences both the transcendental repose of Emerson, the looking, and the ferocious revelry of immersion in nature, something Thoreau would have well understood. While living in his small cabin alongside Walden Pond, where he conducted his own experiments about living, Thoreau had a sudden impulse to devour a woodchuck, quote, for that wildness which he represented. In Yosemite, Muir wanted to eat a squirrel, quote, for the lightning he holds. Muir's writings on Yosemite, like Thoreau's on Walden, are attempts to narrate experience and fathom nature. Muir was every bit as severe as Thoreau in the ways he went about working and reworking his voluminous notes into published form. He labored to describe his experiences in the wilderness setting of them, through sketches and drawings as well as first-hand accounts, though he understood the limits of his reach. At a time in which eyewitness accounts of nature such as stereographic photography claimed to render actual travel unnecessary, Muir knew otherwise. He insisted that every visitor had to experience Yosemite for him or herself, and each ought to search for Yosemite's lessons and teachings as Muir did. Yosemite could not be experienced in a parlor. Looking at a side-by-side stereographic rendering of the valley took the viewer precisely nowhere. Looking had to be in situ. 
Muir did not mind tourists, per se, though he loathed crowds. He minded tourists who did not humble themselves before the park and its glories. Muir well understood and melded the duality of Yosemite as a place of repose and of physical challenge. The destination of both journeys, for Muir at least, was the same, proximity to God's handiwork and thence God. Herein lays another and most important irony of Muir's legacy. He made Yosemite into the post-war American wilderness because he challenged the landscape's peaks, ridges, and rocks, and then he wrote about these contests. And when he wrote about his exploits, or when others wrote about him in that wilderness, he popularized the place. And the same can be said of lesser figures who wrote about, photographed, or experienced other post-war Western places, most notable among them, Yellowstone. What's often forgotten about Muir and his passionate love affair with Yosemite is that he saw the end of its wildness approaching. Once he left Yosemite, he did not come back for long stretches of time, preferring instead his sojourns to Alaska and elsewhere around the world. When he did come back, it was on behalf of redemption. He returned to Yosemite to save it, as Yosemite had saved him in the 1860s, when all seemed lost in his life and in America. You're listening to historian William Deverell, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Summer may be here, but Zocalo is not taking a vacation. Our live events are going strong all summer long. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Was the post-Civil War West a redemptive place? Is it yet? Could it heal the wounds of disunion, heartache, and death, national and individual insults, that it had such a central role in provoking in the first place. At the risk of taking the noncommittal historian's middle road, I'm tempted to answer yes and no, or offer the commonplace it's more complicated than that cop-out of an answer. And I do so with reference to the voices and dreams, especially of the post-Civil War African-American population. In their courageous attempts to start life anew following the abolition of slavery, thousands of newly free peoples rearranged the heavens. Where the North Star had once shone brightly over places like Frederick Douglass's Rochester and his North Star newspaper, Freedom's Beacon in many ways rotated 90 degrees in the post-war night sky, illuminating for black Southerners places like Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, and of course California. Following the call of charismatic black leaders and preachers who self-consciously echoed Moses in the desert, freed exodusters walked and rode west a step ahead of the Klan and the grim violence of what white Southerners claim was the post-Reconstruction redemption of Dixie. Once West, these pioneers soon discovered that the glow of Western freedom perhaps promised more than it delivered. Many settled into all-black townships, self-segregated enclaves of sufficiency, racial pride, and solidarity, at least partially insulated from the often less-than-ideal racial atmosphere of the Far West. As the historian Douglas Flaming has written, the West occupied a meaningful place in black Americans' hearts and minds. Through newspapers, magazines, art, political speeches, and dime novels, the Western ideal had already assumed a powerful position in mainstream American mythology. The ideal held that the American West was a singularly egalitarian place, where opportunity was open to all citizens, regardless of background, lineage, or wealth. The West was the freest part of free America, pure democracy. The Western ideal inspired many African-American dreamers because it promised the equal opportunity they had never found before. Interesting things were happening for blacks in the West during the late 19th century. Out West, and only out West, African-American soldiers manned United States forts. Armed black men were protecting the interests of the nation. The word was, 
that racial conditions there were notably better than they were back east. It was better in the West, better but not perfect, and black leaders knew it, though their observations might be poignantly wishful in their enthusiasm. W.E.B. Du Bois, inheritor of Frederick Douglass's mantle as a leading African-American intellectual from the late 19th and early 20th century, fell in love with a place like Los Angeles. Hardly a gushing sentimentalist, Du Bois nonetheless outboosted the boosters in his praise of Los Angeles, written in the pages of The Crisis, the magazine of the new NAACP, an organization Du Bois helped to found in the early decade of the 20th century. One never forgets Los Angeles and Pasadena, he wrote, the sensuous beauty of roses and orange blossoms, the air and the sunlight, and the hospitality lingers long. Tree-lined boulevards, the fragrance of flowers, the beaches, and freedom wafting in the breeze, Du Bois pronounced Southern California the promised land, the place where the physical and psychic hurts of slavery might be healed. Du Bois was enthralled, and his words are all the more poignant because they seem so out of character for the hard-headed scholar who was the bridging figure between Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X. And he was at least partially, if not mostly, wrong. And that's poignant, too. For as black Southerners left a South retrenched in apartheid, Jim Crow accompanied them westward. Life was better in the West. How could it not be when post-Civil War lynchings of blacks and their white political allies in the party of Lincoln became brutally routine? Life was better, but things would change. An egalitarian window was open in the West, but for how long? A generation? The West not only appeared, but was more racially free. The pattern holds for barometers attuned to anti-Semitism, anti-Mexican behavior, and anti-African-American thought word and deed in the single generation following the Civil War. That this had somehow to do with a redemptive hopefulness regarding region would not surprise me. The glaring exception is the case of Asians and Asian-Americans, especially the Chinese, whose racial threat to whiteness was deemed so troubling that they alone were singled out as an unacceptable candidates for privileges of citizenship and shown the door, forcibly excluded from entering the nation, a racist diplomatic cudgel codified in the 1880s exclusion laws, restrictions not coincidentally first forged in the far west. For others, though, a window opened and then it closed. Anti-Semitism rose in the 19-teens and 1920s, Anti-Mexican thought and behavior began to etch firmly on the political and social landscape the discriminatory spaces of racial antagonism and difference. And Jim Crow came west from the south, bringing with him his angry racist presumptions of legal and social barriers to equality. Perhaps no symbol of this and of this window closing can be found than in the hills and fields of Glendale in the mid-19-teens. When filmmaker D.W. Griffith made his masterpiece, Birth of a Nation, a film credited with a notorious resurgence of groups like the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. Whether or not this was true is immaterial. What the film, and particularly reception of the film, made clear was that the nation and the West had a long ways to go before racial divides gave way to redemption. Abraham Lincoln never came West, but Lincoln knew all about national redemption. When he dedicated the new cemetery at Gettysburg with those few hundred words that have since become one of America's greatest speeches, he recast the Constitution through a rereading of the Declaration of Independence. By taking the Declaration at its word and thus radicalizing the document's claims of equality among all people, Lincoln literally rewrote what the Civil War stood for, even as it continued to rage around him. That was a redemptive oratorical act in that it cast greater honor than the, on the Union dead that Lincoln spoke of that day, those from whom he said all should take, quote, increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. I can well imagine Abraham Lincoln's thoughts turning to the West as the war came to an end in the spring of 1865. 
The union had been preserved, but the cost had been shatteringly high. Well over half a million Americans lay dead. Countless others were sorely wounded in spirit and forever broken in body. And so too the nation itself. Why wouldn't he look to the West of the post-war? Why wouldn't he think to compare East and West as others did of the same period, as did the poet and short story writer Bret Hart, who said of the West and East respectively, and perhaps a little clumsily, here the full harvest and the wagons advance, there the grim reaper and the ambulance. Five days following Lee's surrender at Appomattox, John Wilkes Booth assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Had he lived, I do not doubt he would have come West, if not in person, then in prose and oratory. He would have exhorted the West to live up to its convalescent promises to a wounded nation, and he would have asked more of the place, too. As North and South looked West in the post-war for national ideals and national meanings that broke free of the ferociousness of sectional difference, Lincoln would have urged the West to take the high ground at all times, to live up to its promise, not of instant wealth, but of renewal and redemption, of being a regional beacon for the best that can be in America. Lincoln fell, and the West fell short. It would have, even had he lived, of course. The West is, after all, and was in the post-war, part of America's good and ill, no longer a region outside the states or outside history. But might we, in stories and places and hopes of over a century ago, find the stuff by which to rededicate ourselves and our region to again be a place where, even now in a time of war, redemption, recovery, convalescence, and the magnetic appeal of peace emanate and echo from Western places, from Western hearts, and from Western people. Thank you very much. You're listening to historian William Deverell, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Coming up next week on Zocalo Radio, Jamie McCourt, co-owner of the L.A. Dodgers, talks with Megan Dom about professional baseball. And L.A. restaurateurs Susan Feniger and Mary Sue Milliken tell Jennifer Berry about what it takes to make it in the rough-and-tumble biz of restaurants. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In just a moment, the Zocalo audience gets its turn with historian William Deverell. Stay tuned. Journalist Leroy Sievers has a couple of different answers to the simple question, how are you? A really honest, detailed one for close friends who I want to know the truth, all of it. For people I barely know but who are kind enough to ask, I have a version that's pretty vague. I'm Linda Wertheimer, talking about cancer tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We've been listening to historian William Deverell in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. In this segment, Zocalo's audience poses questions on the redemptive West. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the anti-miscegenation laws that originated in the West. I don't know a great deal about the anti-miscegenation laws except to know that they uh, exist and are forcibly defended in court up until the middle of the 20th century, at which point important California cases, they're challenged. Um, anti-miscegenation laws are, in a sense, the coin of the legal realm. 
dating several hundred years back, but they get challenged in court increasingly in the 20th century around the margins of the nascent civil rights movements of various racial groups, and they're fought back legally so that they are defended. But California, through a variety of cases having to do with Caucasian, Asian marriages, Caucasian Filipino marriages, Caucasian African American marriages, California legal precedent or legal cases are important, uh, not for the victories so much, but for the challenges on the anti-miscegenation laws. I'm curious if there were any women's voices. All the the folks talked about were men. It's a good point. Um, All the voices I have in this talk thus far are men. There's quite a bit of women's voices around this redemptive and convalescent nature of the post-war West. The one aspect that I expect to do a fair amount on are widows. Um, the West becomes a place that's very important to some extremely prominent widows, uh, Libby Custer, Mrs. Garfield, Jesse Benton Fremont, and others. And they come West in part, and they'll reflect upon this in prose as well as in the poetry that a number of them write. They'll come West and settle here for precisely those redemptive or convalescent qualities as widows. So I expect to spend some time with those kinds of folks. Have you placed any particular focus on hot springs and other spa-type areas that people would go to and believe there were healing waters? I haven't done a great deal on hot springs themselves. Where the convalescent angle through the medical literature is going to take me first to tubercular sanitaria that we unaccountably divorce the Civil War from. We tend to just assume that the rise of the West as a destination for post-Civil War tuberculars is a story unto itself. But I'm convinced through the story of a number of these folks whose health is broken by the Civil War that makes them susceptible to tuberculosis and other consumptive diseases, that the war has a great deal to do with it. And the tubercular sanitariums are fascinating institutions all by themselves. Many of them run on military models. Hi. I wondered to what extent do you think the violence of the post-war West, not just the sort of shootout at the OK Corral, but the particularly the war against uh, Indian tribes, fits into the redemptive kind of search by the nation. Violence against Indians um, is, of course, not limited to the West nor to the post-Civil War. But I suspect if we poked around a little bit at that and tried to tie it to the Civil War, the ways in which Americans are seemingly inured to violence after the Civil War and the the ability of Americans to lay hands upon uh, weapons, particularly firearms, after the Civil War goes right up through the roof. So I don't doubt at all that there's probably some powerful connection to this. You do certainly get competing visions after the Civil War for this. When U.S. Grant decides to deliver Indian agencies into the hands of Christian missionaries after the war, that's an attempt to reorganize and revisit the problem of the Indian after the Civil War, as it were. But there are many people after the Civil War who will claim that the Indian problem is a problem that needs to be addressed simply by extermination. And they'll claim, oftentimes, religious or redemptive qualities in that act. The most glaring case of this is the 1864 massacre at Sand Creek in Colorado, where a Civil War volunteer colonel of the Colorado militia named John Shivington massacres an entire village, mostly of women and children, while the men are away on a hunting party. And that gets tied inextricably to visions of the West doing its part in the Civil War. Uh, another California historian, um, Jim Holliday, wrote a book about the gold rush in which he claimed that a lot of the veterans and other men came west and left behind an awful lot of women. 
and that there are very touching letters between the two. Are you looking into the male-female connection as the men came to blaze the frontier and left behind uh, women and others that they hoped eventually to go home to but maybe fell in love with the West and never returned? Not so much in this context because the post-Civil War Westering men, if they have families, bring them with them. The Westering of post-Civil War figures has a lot to do with families. Where it does get very interesting is when um, Civil War and the Gold Rush remain the most written about events and eyewitness events in 19th century America, if not in all of American history. And we're increasingly finding isolated but very interesting and important cases where one brother goes west to look for gold in the 1850s and into the 1860s, and the other brother ends up in the Civil War, and they write one another about visions of America and the defense of America. So those kinds of letters have been very much overlooked by scholars who are trying to compare West and East in the same era. Uh, This goes back to the historian's unaccountable notion of slicing the West off from the war raging in the East, and I'll argue that it's inextricably tied. You've talked a lot about the West as a destination of renewal, but can you talk a little bit about what the Civil War and the immediate aftermath would have been like for the people who were here all along. And I'm thinking specifically of Mexicans and former Mexicans who are now Californians in the United States who see their way of life ending. It's a very interesting question. There's some tantalizing early research by colleagues and friends of mine about that. Mexicans are, who choose to stay in the Southwest following the territorial session of the end of the Mexican War are, of course, afforded the privileges of citizenship, at least in theory. That puts them in a very tricky position in many respects within a dozen years or so when the Civil War breaks out because in parts like Southern California, it's not entirely clear that Southern California might even contemplate breaking off from California and pledging allegiance to the Confederacy because there's a lot of Southern loyalists here. That puts Mexican-Americans in a very complicated position about choosing their loyalties. After all, the Mexican Republic is an anti-slavery republic. There's no love lost between Mexicans and the concept of slavery, in part because Americans continue to invade Mexico in the 1850s trying to spread slavery down there. There are cases where Mexican-Americans here in California pledge fealty and loyalty to the Union and send financial support into the Union as loyal Americans. But we know far too little about that. Um, Some of the themes that you've referred to are also common to the other migrations to North America, to the United States or the colonies beforehand, the 17th century, 18th, renewal, escape from a traumatic past, opportunity, holy mission, all of those things. How would you compare similarity of this theme to uh, a theme found uh, throughout the history? There's no doubt that the beacon of America, true or false, holds a lot of the same concepts and principles that I've addressed tonight about redemption, renewal, um, idealization of the American experience. I think you're right in suggesting there's no place that has the Civil War like the 1860s has the Civil War. So the ferociousness of the rupture in the national fabric is so compelling and so profound. And also, this project takes off literally from the medical side of the war, with Jonathan Letterman saying to the wounded or saying to his superiors, I've got to get these soldiers outdoors, these wounded soldiers, the Civil War medical facilities, the tents, etc., are killing them. Because he understood in a primitive way germ theory. I've got to get them out of doors. And that kind of convalescence in nature, out of doors, 
I'm willing to believe that in the post-Civil War, the American West becomes the nations out of doors as things move from a place like Niagara to a place like Yosemite. And so the healing qualities of the wounded, amputees, those whose health is shattered by the Civil War, there's a great many combat deaths, of course, in the Civil War, but these combat deaths are dwarfed by the numbers who die from disease. The numbers who die from disease are two, three, four, five, six times those that are caused by battlefield trauma. And that's the takeoff for this project. Why, when the Mexican War ended, did so much of Mexican territory get ceded to the United States? On what basis could this land change take place? It's an interesting question. The the easy answer is America wanted it. Um, And Manifest Destiny had told Americans through a variety of prisms having to do with greater and lesser response to uh, a divinely inspired obligation or God's special purpose for America, or simply, it doesn't have to be refracted through a religious prism, it could be a kind of civil religious manifest destiny that it's there and we're going to take it. Um, The American war against Mexico is brutal and quick. And the American military might is, even in the pre-Civil War era, when the American military is really quite small, there's not much to it at all, Putting down Mexico in the war by invading Mexican territory eventually during the height of the war had offered Americans the opportunity to take what they many expected that America deserved in the first place. In some ways, the question could also be how come they didn't take the whole thing? Because after all, in the 1840s, there is an all-Mexico cry in America that says, let's take the whole thing. Southerners want the whole thing because they think they can export cotton and slavery into Mexico. Northerners want the whole thing because they see it as a kind of divinely inspired plan to capture Canada. We kind of failed to take Canada. The Irish keep trying to take Canada from America throughout the early 19th century in forces of about six or eight guys. That fails. So why not take the southern part of North America um, and expand either American uh, democracy or slavery there? The problem with that, the reason all Mexico failed and they took only half of it is they took the less populated half. They took the half that was more contiguous to the spread of America anyways, and all of Mexico raised problems which were simply put what to do with all the Mexicans, um, which is a problem, of course, we wrestle with. You know, The past is right with us, uh, and you get an entire 360-degree array of political opinion about that issue. And the mid-19th century was no different except it's christened by warfare. You've been listening to William Deverell, the director of the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West, in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to the Los Angeles Times, the James Irvine Foundation, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this program possible. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z 